we're going to look now as we move from uh, a man that was coming to Christ and kind of seeing where he was worthy, uh, giving some credence to Christ, but really trying to, to make himself feel good, reconcile uh, who Christ was with what Christ was saying, because it was obvious that uh, Jesus was different, that he had power from God, but they struggled with what Christ was saying because he spoke to their need and to their weakness, to their uh, sin. And so they were having a wrestling time with it. And so the conversation continues. I call this responding to salvation. And it deals with Nicodemus being confronted now with realities. And there's an innate danger when we ignore reality. Uh, you can ignore the reality that you have no money, keep spending on the credit card, but at some point you're going to have to pay the bill. You can get letters from the court, refuse to answer them, but at some point they're going to show up at your house and elicit the proper response because you can only ignore reality for a period of time before you must engage with it, before you have to respond. And so as we continue this conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus, we look now to responding to salvation and examine realities that cannot be ignored, beginning with the reality of ignorance. If you look at your Bible, verses 11 and 12 of chapter 3 of John says this, Verily, verily, which we talked about, truly, truly, the amen, amen, the emphasis that Christ will do. Uh, there's three of those in this conversation. This is the third driving him to see, wake up. It's, it's an emphasis. It's, a, it's Christ's way of, of letting them know uh, to highlight this, to not miss it. It says, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, we speak that we do know and testify that we have seen, and you receive not our witness. If I have told you earthly things and you believe not, how shall you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? And, and this statement goes all the way back to that question in verse 9 that Nicodemus asked. He says, how can these things be? Which was not a question that came from not knowing. It came from, from a heart of not wanting to listen, not wanting to believe. And so this answer that Christ gives continues Jesus's rebuke of his willful ignorance. You'll notice that the first answer to his question we closed with last week was this idea of you teach Israel, you're a teacher and you don't know this, and now Christ expands on it. Now, there's a reason for the break at 10 and to 11, because up until this point, it's been a dialogue. In verse 9 is Nicodemus's last words, actually, that he says in this conversation. It's no longer a dialogue between Jesus and Nicodemus. Now it is Jesus instructing Nicodemus in the truths of salvation. It's a monologue. He's just teaching now. He's telling him that he and everyone needs salvation. The reality of life for those who do not respond in belief to what God has said to him. He's going to tell him what that looks like. He's not going to sugarcoat it. At the end of this conversation, he's telling him, if you don't know Christ, if you haven't believed, if you stay where you're at, you're under judgment, you're under condemnation. So A, and as we talked about last week, maybe even the premier teacher in Israel is told he has missed the foundational teaching. He has not received the witness. He has refused to believe. And foundational teaching is not 
earthly, and we'll talk about that a little bit. It's not earthly as in it's of this world. It is meaning that it is elementary. It's, it's the basics. It's the foundations. 1 Corinthians 2.14 tells us why this happens. Paul writes, But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, because they're spiritually discerned. Nicodemus and pretty much the majority of Israel have refused the testimony of Jesus, refused the testimony of John the Baptist, refused the testimony of the Scriptures. That testimony, described again as earthly things, is not of the world, as I said, but it means foundational or elementary principles of the new birth of salvation. He's turned to Nicodemus and says, because Nicodemus wants to know some other things. He has curiosities, and, and Christ is basically telling him, you're never going to understand because you have to grasp the foundational principle of needing new birth and what the new birth entails. And we know we have to understand elementary principles. If you want to know the intricate details of math, you have to understand the foundational components of math. If you want to go to Italy... And maybe you like food. I like food. I'm sure that's obvious. But you like food and you want to go to Italy and you want to discuss the intricate nuances of pasta with an Italian in their own language. Well, then you better understand their alphabet and you better know how to read and write in their language. If you want to excel at a sport or maybe even a specific position in a sport, you have to con conquer the basics. How many times you watch an NFL game? These are the pro athletes and they talk about the quarterback and, and when they mess up, they'll say, well, he's not doing the, the foundational things. He hasn't got the steps back right. He's not stepping forward like he's supposed to do. He's holding the ball wrong. He's throwing the ball wrong, all the foundations. And if we really examine life, we understand that to do anything, you have to conquer the basics. You have to know the foundations. See, the teaching that Nicodemus may have been seeking uh, future splendors of God's kingdom, how he's going to have Jewish leadership, what are the details of the resurrected life, they are unfathomable to him. He will never really understand them. Why? Because he refused to know the foundational truth of salvation. How many people do you talk to who are lost and you share the truth of the gospel and they start asking questions on the far-reaching scale, down into the rabbit hole of science or theology. And the fact is this, and you talk with them and you realize they're never going to understand why they've ignored the foundational truth of salvation. MacArthur notes this, because of Nicodemus's refusal to believe, he could not even fathom the earthly truth of the new birth, not to mention profound heavenly realities such as the relationship of the Father and the Son, God's kingdom, or his eternal plan of redemption. Nicodemus' ignorance, and by representation, Israel's ignorance, was seen in two ways. They refused intellectually to accept Jesus as God. We go all the way back to how he approached Christ. You are a teacher. You're a rabbi. You must be sent from God. Well, no, Jesus was sent by God, but he is God. And so they refused to accept Jesus as God and then there was a spiritual refusal in them. They refused to accept that they or he or us were helpless sinners in need of salvation. When Nicodemus walked to Christ 
and why he had the reality of ignorance is that he walked to Christ and said, I will not believe in you as God, and I will not believe that I have a desperate need that I can't fix on my own. Willful ignorance was and is un, unwilling or willful unbelief. They refused to acknowledge who Jesus was and continues to be and refused to see their desperate need. It was fine to see others as helplessly depraved. In the Jewish mind, in Nicodemus's mind, he had no, no problem at all looking at the Romans and saying, they're awful. They need God. They need salvation. They need to give up everything. They need to realize there's nothing in them that matters. Anyone else can be hopelessly depraved, but them? Well, surely their pedigree, their works, their societal status elevated them above such base submission. And if you think, wow, I can't believe the Jewish nation thought that way, you just talk to anyone in church in the United States. Well, not fair, anyone. Go into any church and talk to people. And you'll realize that there's pedigree, there's societal status, there's what they've done. That's all going to be reasons why they think they don't have to submit to Jesus Christ as Lord, that they don't have to bow the knee, that they are not completely depraved, that that is for somebody else in some way, but is not for them. You see, they would not submit because the truth confronted their pride. It confronted who they were. It confronted who they identified as. And so they lived in willful ignorance, seeing the foundational aspects of faith as foolishness. Just what Paul wrote. If you don't believe, then everything you see about Christianity seems ridiculous to you. It's foolish. And I put as a question as we look at this willful ignorance, are you guilty of the same? Are you living in willful ignorance or a, I like to expand in willful arrogance? Saying to God, well, I'll come to you how I come to you. I don't need you completely like everyone else needs you. I bring something to the table. I come with my own pedigree. Sadly, I, I think that even as believers, we tend to slip back into that willful ignorance of who we really are and our foundational need and dependence upon Christ. Even as believers, we tend to forget that we need Jesus, that without him, we are nothing, that we don't bring anything to the table because we walk in our Christian walk and our Christian life, and at some point we decide we're earning something. God's lucky to have us. And so after Jesus' confrontation of Nicodemus' ignorance and unbelief, he wastes no time in bringing to bear the reality of salvation. And we look at this in a chunk, verses 13 through 17. So Jesus has said to him, you, you can't understand because you've ignored what is the basic reality of life. You've ignored the fact that you need Christ, that you need salvation, and you'll never understand beyond that. And now he goes in to the foundational component of salvation. He says, And no man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up 
that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And so as Jesus begins highlighting salvation, he starts by establishing authority. The first verse is telling Nicodemus, you're not the authority. Your training is not the authority. Your status in society is not the authority. The authority is Christ. The only one possessing true knowledge of heaven, heavenly reality is the one from heaven. D.A. Carson writes about verse 13, Jesus can speak of heavenly things not because he ascended to heaven from a home on earth and then descended to tell others of his experiences, but because heaven was his home in the first place. Why can Jesus speak of eternity? Because he is eternity. He is in heaven. In the physical sense, he's there on earth, but he's God and he's omnipresent. And so he is the only one that can speak of this. It is Jesus who uniquely now speaks with authority about God's redemptive plan. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2 says this, Long ago and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. The Son who came from heaven to the earth he created is speaking directly and authoritatively to Nicodemus. And, and by representation, he's speaking authoritatively to all of Israel. He's speaking authoritatively to all the world. And then let's get a little bit more personal. He's speaking authoritatively to us. He is telling you that he has the right, and it's God's grace that he tells us that he has the right. He doesn't have to explain himself to tell you about what eternity involves, about your need, about salvation. And it's from this position of authority as the Son of God, the Messiah, not just a teacher from God, but Jesus makes it clear that he must now die, be lifted up, and he uses now a well-known Old Testament narrative to make that point. He's confronted Nicodemus with different connections, and now he shares something with Nicodemus, and, and he does it to establish the process to make sure he can understand what is taking place. And in verses 14 and 15, he's referencing something that takes place in Numbers chapter 21, verses 5 through 9. It is during Israel's wandering in the wilderness, actually more towards the end of their wandering. <laughs> if you've been with us on Wednesday night, you know we've walked through this. And they had again wickedly complained against God, and, and God sent venomous snakes to punish them, to correct them. Snakes whose bite caused death. Just in case you're wondering if it's a, a black snake flying around that's, that's going to hurt, but it's not going to kill you, these snakes would kill you. And so in the process of these snakes coming in, and it sounds like the worst punishment in the world for a person who does not like snakes, um, and I'm one of those people, if you're saved, you don't like snakes. I'm just kidding, Abby. I don't want to get in trouble there. From what Abby tells me, there are good snakes in the world. I've never met one. <laughs> Though Rocky was good. We did bring a snake into the church, and um, I share this because I thought I could handle a snake near me, 
And so to illustrate a point, Abby put her pet, Rocky, I don't know what kind of snake it was, they're all one category to me, uh, on my shoulders, and uh, I can't handle that. Um, I froze. Um, she had told me to sit still, that's less likely to get bit. <laughs> Bob Price back there had sent me articles about people who had gotten bit since I was born, um, and that had messed with my mind. And I had a cold sweat and couldn't move, and so I say all that just because I'm petrified of snakes, so this illustration bears down on me. But these were not nice snakes like Rocky. These were horrible, wicked, venomous snakes that God sent in a multitude. And so people are dying, and so they cry to God. And God instructs Moses to do something interesting, is to make a bronze snake and put it on a pole and lift it up so it could be seen. Now, Israel was instructed, if you want to turn to this, and not as an object, but if you would look at the pole and, and cry out to God, then they would be healed, and, and that process would be them acknowledging their guilt and expressing faith in God's forgiveness and healing power. Now, there's no power in the bronze serpent. It actually was destroyed by King Hezekiah because Israel, decades, centuries later, started worshiping the bronze serpent, thinking it had magical power, and he rightfully destroyed this because the people were healed because of their trust in God and his forgiveness and healing. And Jesus is connecting Nicodemus to the story because he knows this story. He understands it. He's read scripture. He knows Numbers, the Pentateuch, the first books. He's going to know the history from Hezekiah. That's been written. He knows all these things. And so Jesus connects Nicodemus to this historical fact to highlight that he, Jesus, must be lifted up, meaning Christ's death was necessary for God's plan of salvation. Just as a quick run through, we know that the wages of sin is death. We know that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness and so God sent his son to pay the price for us. And like the serpent illustration, salvation comes solely by looking in faith toward the crucified Christ. What is he driving Nicodemus to see? <clears throat> no matter how smart you were when you wandered the desert, no matter how elite you were, no matter how good you were, maybe the other complainers were there, but you're in the mix and I didn't really complain. No matter how justified you felt you were, when it came to getting bit by a snake, you were healed by looking at the raised up serpent, the, the, the lifted up solution. And you would look and express guilt. You would acknowledge, you would submit to what God had said. We were wrong. And I'm going to trust God's healing. And that illustration would hopefully break Nicodemus down to help him understand that he doesn't get to turn to God and say, yeah, but I would have been the one Israelite in the wilderness that wouldn't need to look at that serpent because I'm good enough. I'm okay. I have intrinsic worth in me that should avoid the need to fall on my knees. But there's uniqueness in Christ. And we know that because unlike the bronze serpent, which was an object turned toward to acknowledge sin and faith in God, and we know was ultimately destroyed, Christ brought life in himself. So unlike the serpent, which was an illustration of saying, I'm going to look to this, which then means I acknowledge my guilt and my need, and I acknowledge that only God can heal me. Now we turn in a different way. We look to the cross and we see Christ on the cross and we realize he brought life in himself. Whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. 
turning to him, not to just what he represented. And, and if you actually break the Greek text down, because if you look here in 15 and then you go to 16, it looks like we have a similar expression, and it's not the same in Greek. Based on Greek, this text reads better this way, whosoever believeth should not perish, but in him have everlasting life. This first illustration that is given uh, to Nicodemus when he, when he drives him, he says, you need to believe. And he's confronting something in Nicodemus because Nicodemus thinks he has faith. And Christ is saying, you don't believe. You, you, you won't accept. You won't believe our testimony. He says, you need to believe and then realize that in me, you have eternal life. And what he's trying to do at this first onset is remind Nicodemus and remind us in whom our salvation always rests. <clears throat> this is a critical component of these verses for the lost, but also for those who are saved. How easy it is to forget in whom your salvation rests. And it is always in the person of Jesus Christ. My salvation never rests in me. It's not tied up in what I do, what I accomplish. It is always in Jesus Christ. But why, you may ask, why should Christ be lifted up? Why should he die? And Jesus answers that question with God's eternally established purpose. I'm going to reread verses 16 and 17. And we know this verse, but it's good to hear it over and over. For God so love the world. Why does Christ have to be lifted up? And it goes all the way back to God's love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And as we encounter this most well-known verse in scripture, we see that God's purpose is built from love. As Leon Morris notes, God loved, so he gave. His love is not vague. It's not a sentimental feeling. It's a love that costs. God's love was an expansive love. It's not confined to a national group or spiritual elites. <clears throat> that hits hard for Nicodemus. He is coming to Christ, and he's talking to him, but he comes from a heart of eliteness. He comes from a heart of exclusion. He comes from, you got to punish those Gentiles, you got to punish those pagans. The Jews are fine. We're good. We have no issues. I want us to realize something, that his love was toward an evil, sinful world, completely undeserving, and a love so great that it brought his undescribable or indescribable gift of Jesus Christ. That's what Paul talks about it. How can you describe the gift of Jesus Christ? You cannot. That's why Paul, who is, I would say, one of the wordier people in Scripture, his, his epistles and his letters go on, and, and they're, they're longer. And he writes, we can't have words to describe this. Why? Because God gave himself to a world that was awful, that was wicked. The whole structure of the sentence in the Greek language emphasizes the intensity of the love, a love to be admired most because it was bestowed on a world that was so bad. God's purpose was built from 
his love, a selfless and costly love of redemption, a redemption built in faith. Now it says that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And here the in him is set up different than in 15, where in 15 he is emphasizing believing and that in him you have eternal life to emphasize Christ. He's emphasizing now in this phrase, you need to believe in Christ. He's carrying Nicodemus along. And now he says, you need to focus on Jesus Christ. You need to focus on the Messiah. MacArthur notes this, our Lord is saying that for all in the world, there is only one Savior. Everyone. There is no separation there. But only those who are regenerated, who believe in his gospel, will receive salvation and eternal life through him. And for the one who is saved, what does he say? They will not perish. It's a question about salvation. Genuine salvation can never be lost. It is held in him. It is secured in him. <clears throat> and I know when we look at John 3 and we think of John 3.16 and we understand the foundational aspect of this chapter, how it has been taught around the world. It is the most well-known, and what you start realizing as you study it is as Christ is teaching this foundation or elementary principles of knowing him, of being saved, there's still so much depth that comes with it. Because if you will not perish as a promise from God, that means your salvation cannot be lost, and it means he holds it. Because let's be honest, every one of us can lose things. And if our salvation was held in us, we'd all lose it all the time. But it's not. There's whole groups of people that think they can lose their salvation, and they're going against what Christ said as a foundational principle of salvation. If you're truly saved, you can never lose your salvation because it's secured in Him. If you've believed in Him, you will not perish. You cannot because He has promised and He holds. God's whole plan in sending His only begotten Son, and again, words will never be adequate to describe the magnitude of that gift, yet God's plan in sending Jesus to earth was built for redemption. Now we see, and a world looks at this, right? When we, and we're going to look at, at 18 through 21, and we're going to see how the world responds and why it's so ugly. Because if you think about the world today, when you share the gospel with somebody, how does the world respond? You're narrow-minded. You're hateful. How dare you talk about hell and eternal death? And how dare you talk about submitting to God? How dare you remove me from this equation? How dare you tell me I need to believe in somebody, that I need salvation, that I'm not good enough in and of myself? And so the world always puts a negative spin on it, but that's because the world is wicked and is in darkness. What Christ tells us about his, uh, about his plan is it was built for redemption. And in verse 17, it says, For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. God came to bring salvation to the world, which refuted, in, in a very clear way, a belief at that time that when the Messiah came, he would judge all heathens and Gentiles and leave the Jews untouched. And it's highlighting God's purpose. There's no doubt, you go to John 9, and, and Jesus says, I came to judge the world. And so we'll wrestle with that and say, well, that seems to be a contradiction. Well, there is no contradiction because it's, it's a misperception 
of the world is what it really boils down to. We know he'll come to judge, but that judgment will be on those who reject him. The purpose of the first coming of Jesus was salvation, a gift extended to the world. As MacArthur writes, God's gracious offer of salvation extended beyond Israel to all mankind. This is the beautiful picture being painted by Christ for Nicodemus. Here is God's redemptive plan. Here is God's purpose. It comes from his love. It's built in faith and it was built for redemption. Christ coming to earth was so that we could be saved. That's the reality of salvation. But I have a question. What have you done with the reality of salvation? What are you doing with it today? Every one of us must be individually confronted with the truth of salvation. The reality that Jesus came to earth to die for us because he loved us, because we desperately needed saving, and there's nothing we bring to the table that buys or warrants our salvation. Every single person has to be confronted with that reality. This is Nicodemus's whole issue. He's come to Christ at night, and again, we talked about it. doesn't mean he's a coward. This is when you would talk oftentimes, and, and he has come to Christ, and Christ has said to him, you don't warrant salvation. You can't buy it. There's nothing about you that makes you ready or more ready than someone else, that you don't bypass this step. You don't have to stand in this line. You don't have special status. You don't, you don't have an inroad without Christ. But he tells them that he died for the world, that he came to redeem. And then I put everyone who is saved must keep the reality of salvation forefront in their minds, their hearts, in their purpose. We, the church, his redeemed, should be doing something actively with the reality of salvation today. There's a lot of things I'm trying to emphasize. We often talk about what salvation was to us in the past, what it means for the future, but we neglect the now. Look at Christ engaged in deep conversation with a skeptic. Nicodemus is not coming to believe here. He does later in life. In this conversation, he doesn't walk out a redeemed man. That's not the implication we're given. What is Christ doing? Explaining the reality of salvation, showing his authority, his process, and his purpose. He brought to the forefront God's great love for sinful humanity. He brought to the forefront humanity's great need for that love and that in Christ's perfect sacrificial love is eternal life. What in the world is Jesus Christ doing at night with a doubter bringing actively to the forefront the reality of salvation? Do you make known salvation and the reality of salvation in your daily interactions? Is that forefront in our minds as we bump into lost people? That really hit home to me as I was studying this. Is I, you think, well, Jesus is on earth. Of course he's going to talk about salvation. Why else would he, what else would he talk about? Yeah, we're supposed to emulate him. We're supposed to be his ambassador. We have the calling from him. We need to sense the urgency of the gospel to understand the compelling and driving need of humanity for Christ, for them to believe, because one can never ignore the reality of rejection. 
you make a huge mistake if you read John 3.16 and don't finish out to 21. It goes on in verse 18. He that believeth on him is not condemned. And now up to this point, and I want to give a little parameter, we have looked at the world as a whole. And 18 is going to start splitting the goat from the sheep, the wheat from the tares, wherever that works out. It's going to show us the difference. It says, and he that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For every one that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. But he that doeth truth cometh to the light, that his deeds may be made manifest, that they are wrought in God. And that's an important step in, in combating our arrogance because we don't come to the light to show off us. We actually come and are drawn to the light as believers to see and to manifest what God has done in us, what he's changed, what he's accomplished. And here in 18, that collective world is split out. It is designated by those who believe and are therefore uncondemned and those who do not believe. And the reality of unbelief comes crashing in to the equation. <clears throat> this is how we understand John 9 when he says, I came to judge the world because the world stands under judgment. See, if one escapes perishing by belief, if he says, if you, uh, whoever believes in him shall not perish, you will not perish if your faith and trust is in Jesus Christ, then the logical other half of that comes to bear. If belief equals not perishing, then unbelief equals perishing. If believing equals life, eternal life, then disbelief equals eternal death. And that reality of rejection is not just in the future. Jesus makes clear that those who have not believed, not submitted to Christ, have not acknowledged their sin and sought the Savior are existing under judgment. Verse 18, for a believer, I think is one of the more critical verses to spur us on to understand what our calling is to do in this world. Because if you believe, you're not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already. This is the true and current existence of humanity without Jesus Christ. You look at somebody who doesn't know Christ, a friend, a colleague, a family member, and you're staring at somebody who is under the wrath of God right then. They are already condemned. And that's the reality of the world that Jesus came into. He did not come into a neutral world. This is the problem we struggle with. We think he came in, Christ came in, and suddenly he calls this problem because Christ came in and you either have to believe or disbelieve. He becomes this dividing force. He didn't come into a neutral world. He came into a world that was already lost and already condemned. It was a world that was existing in darkness. And as these verses make clear, it is willful and purposeful existing in darkness. They are condemned because the obvious light of eternity has come into the world, but they loved darkness. 
and darkness depicts wickedness. And they therefore, because they love wickedness, hate the light. What is John saying here? What is Christ teaching here? They hate him. They hate Jesus and they spurn his sacrifice and they spurn his righteousness. So many people will say, well, I love Jesus, but I don't like all that judgmental stuff from the Christians. That isn't judgmental stuff from the Christians. You hate Jesus because you hate his righteousness. You cannot love his sacrifice and hate his righteousness. So when you look and say, ah, I look at Jesus and I hear this all the time, I believe in the God of love. I don't believe in the God of the Old Testament. I don't believe in the God of judgment. I don't. Jesus talked more about hell than heaven. And he's going to be very clear when he says this, you're condemned already. That's what he wants to make clear. These are critical things. Why? Because when, when the world exists purposely in darkness, they hate his righteousness. Why? Because they're evil and light would expose their wickedness. And the world has always done this. It's, it's the same today as it was yesterday and will be tomorrow. As long as the world is allowed to exist, they do not want anyone telling them what is right and wrong. They want no absolute but themselves. Why are people so offended when you tell them they need to be born again? that they must submit to Jesus Christ, that they bring nothing to the table. I don't know how many people I talk to, and it's just a, the silliest statement. Sadly, you'll read books, biographies of people, and on one page, they'll talk about how they believe in Jesus. And on the next page, they'll say, I'm going to be in heaven because I've done enough good things, and I think I've, I think I've made it. And, and, and they'll talk about all the stuff they've done on page 10, but on page 8, they're saying, I believe in Jesus. They don't believe in Jesus. They believe in themselves. Jesus is just a convenient religion to tap into. Why is that? Because they want no one telling them that they have nothing in themselves that warrants salvation. There's no absolute but themselves, and so they detest anyone or anything that says otherwise. Why does the world hate the church? Because we're supposed to be bearers of Christ's light. We're his ambassadors. We're supposed to share that everyone needs him, that we bring nothing to the table, that who we are is just simple humanity in desperate need of Christ. And, and because they refuse that, because they desperately cling to their darkness and wickedness, they sit willfully under rightful judgment, and that is important. This judgment they sit un, under is warranted. This is God's holiness. The condemnation, they sit under the condemnation of Almighty God, all to keep their false view that they are rulers of their own lives and destinies, all to protect what they want, even though what they want equals their forever destruction it equals eternal death. I know those are somber words followed after the best words you could ever hear. But as believers, we need to feel the weight of that. When we see lost friends, we need to understand where they are and that they're under judgment, that they're under condemnation that what they cling to equals death eternally. 
If you're lost, don't think that just throwing out Jesus' name, being in church is going to do anything for you. Matthew 7, I think it's 21 through 23, it says, Many will say, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we cast out demons? Didn't we do miracles? And he'd say, I don't know you. Depart from me. You see, there's no other way of salvation than submitting to Jesus Christ. Then understanding that you must come to the cross, you must bow the knee. He is Lord. He is in authority. We do not bring, we do not earn, we cannot gain. We can only bow our knee at the cross and put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Now, this dialogue ends with the opposite truth because the opposite is true for the believer. Instead of rejecting the light, the believer is someone who's coming into the light, someone who loves the light as it shows God's work done in them. The believer wants what God has done to be exposed, to be highlighted, to be visual. So many people talk about their faith being private and they're going to hide it. Well, that's just for me. Uh, it's hard to, to wrap my mind around that and say that you're a believer because you want what Christ has done to be visual. And it's a very simple question as we look at the reality of rejection. Which group do you belong to? The one driven to darkness that has to hide and keep their wickedness. You might say to me, well, Kenny, the world is proud of their sin. Well, of course they're proud of their sin. It's darkness. They're just trying to put more darkness around them. They hate what is the light. And there's those who believe that come to the light because they want, they want what Christ has done to be known. Which group do you belong to? The one loving darkness, lost and depraved and set for destruction? Or the one loving light, seeing clearly what God has done in them, what God has done for them, and what God is doing through them. Verse 21 closes the discussion with Nicodemus. Nicodemus is a man seeking answers from the right place, but for the wrong reasons. He wanted his mind eased. He wanted his way confirmed. He wanted his life verified. Doesn't that sound like the world today? I want to make sure that my mind is eased, my way is confirmed, and how I'm living my life is verified, justified, right. What he got was a clear explanation of life, a clear call to see reality, to be confronted with who he was and who he desperately needed. He was a man that was willfully ignorant, missing the reality of salvation for the time being, and remaining with those who rejected the light. Every one of his answers to the questions that were asked were this. Yes, I'm going to be willfully ignorant. No, I want nothing to do with salvation. And I most definitely want to stay in darkness and pretend it is light. Because that's what he was doing. I am the light, he says to Jesus. And Jesus is saying, no, you're not. I'm the light. You're in darkness. Now, what's fascinating and wonderful as you read through the Gospels, you find that Nicodemus is bravely participating in getting Christ off the cross. He bravely argues in the Sanhedrin for the unjust trial that's taking place. In other words, we're going to see a change in Nicodemus towards the end of Jesus' ministry. But now he is the world represented. And I put here uh, as a question, are you acting like Nicodemus today? 
Are you living in willful ignorance and willful arrogance? Have you forgotten your foundational need, your foundational dependence upon Christ? I think that's so easy, that question right there. If you know Christ is your Savior and you're a believer, I think it's very easy for us to forget the foundational need we have for Christ. That we don't grow past that, we don't mature out of that truth. And then what have you done with the reality of salvation? As we learn from this discourse, no one is exempt from needing it. If someone could be exempt, it would be Nicodemus. A man who knows the scripture, premier teacher, he's as close to not needing it as anyone could get, and no one is close to not needing it. No one is exempt from needing salvation, yet sadly so many reject it. A rejection that we need to understand places them under condemnation right now. That the world without Christ sits under God's wrath, God's rightful judgment, because they have rejected the one and only solution for sin, the only path to light, and that's Jesus Christ. 